0: Theodorant wrote of Cyril's death, At last, with a final struggle, the villain has passed away. Observing that his malice increased daily and injured the body of the church, the governor of our souls has lopped him off like a canker. His departure delights the survivors, but possibly disheartens the dead. There is some fear that, under the provocation of his company, they may send him back again to us. Care must therefore be taken to order the guild of undertakers to place a very big and heavy stone on his grave to stop him coming back here. I am glad and rejoice to see the fellowship of the church delivered from such a contagion, but I am saddened and sorry as I reflect that the wretched man never took rest from his misdeeds, but died designing greater and worse. Before we get to that, we need to back up a bit. Almost two decades before Cyril was born, all the way back to 362 CE. Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm your host, Tyler Stanley. In today's episode, we'll be talking about Cyril of Alexandria. In 362, a newly orphaned teenager named Theophilus took his infant sister and left the ancient Egyptian capital of Memphis, still a bastion of polytheism in a world quickly converting to Christianity, and found his way to the cultural capital of Alexandria. Having been instilled with the Christian faith by his parents before their death, young Theophilus sought out the Alexandrian church and enrolled himself in the catechumenate under the well-known bishop the hero veteran of the theological war against Arianism, Athanasius. The two orphans were baptized and taken into the care of the church. The infant was put into the care of the local community of virgins, while Theophilus began his theological education directly under the care of Athanasius himself. Athanasius died about a decade later, in May of 373. In the years leading up to his death, Theophilus had served as Athanasius' personal secretary. Now, remember in our discussions about Nicaea and Arianism, once the Nicene Creed was written, it was promptly forgotten by the church. It didn't have an immediate authoritative position in ecclesial politics, so Athanasius' successor, Pope Peter II, was ousted by the Roman emperor Valens, an Arian, who installed an Arian priest, Lucius. But don't worry, that didn't last long. Peter returned, and Lucius fled because the Alexandrian Christian populace actually didn't like Arians. Pope Peter eventually passed on the papal mantle to his brother, Timothy. During this time, Theophilus was rising in the ecclesial ranks, first as a deacon and a teacher, then as an archdeacon. It was also during this time that Theophilus' little sister grew up and got married. She moved to the city of Theodosiu, With her husband, where sometime around 378 she had a son and named him Cyril. An important side note as we took pains to explain in our episodes on Nicaea and Constantine, it's often wrongly asserted that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, or that he made Christianity legal, but that isn't exactly true. Constantine was the first Christian emperor but he merely reaffirmed his predecessor's edict of toleration for Christianity. The honor of making Nicene Christianity the official state church goes to Theodosius I, who ascended to the imperial throne in 379. Remember all that confusing mess of emperors in the Constantine episode? Well, it's still a mess. The empire was split in two kingdoms, the east and the west, ruled by separate emperors. Theodosius was emperor in the east, but eventually he killed the western emperor and once again united the empire under a single leader. He would be the last emperor to rule over the united Roman world, and it only lasted a few years, until he split it up once again between his own sons, and Rome continued its slow decline. Theodosius is important here because he was the first emperor to begin persecution against pagans and non-Nicene Christians in 381. The persecuted had become the persecutors. In 385, Pope Timothy died, and Theophilus became Pope Theophilus of Alexandria. At that time, young Cyril was old enough to begin his schooling, which may have occurred under the direction of Theophilus. We aren't sure of all the details but Cyril did eventually find himself in the ecclesial courts, serving his uncle pope. Being so well connected among the highest academic towers in the known world, Cyril likely received an enviable education. So, during his formative years, young Cyril is watching the emperor and his own uncle eradicate paganism from the Egyptian world. Throughout the late 4th century, Riots and murders occur with increasing frequency between religious groups in Alexandria. In 395 under Theophilus, the Egyptian Serapium was sacked by a Christian mob. The Serapium was a magnificent temple to the Greco-Egyptian deity Serapis, and boasted of a large library, even to the point that it was known as the Daughter of the Museon, that is, the great library of Alexandria that had been destroyed long before. Accounts differ on who started this fight. Pagan sources suggest that militant Christians attacked the temple completely unprovoked. Christian sources suggest that Emperor Theodosius's prohibition on paganism led to the abandonment of pagan temples, which Christians then tore down and built their own churches on the foundations. The desecration of these temples led some pagans to attack the Christians, who responded in kind. Whoever started it this time, the pagans took refuge in the Serapium, and may have tortured some Christians that they had taken hostage. Emperor Theodosius sent a letter to Pope Theophilus, demanding that the pagans be pardoned for their offense, but also called for the destruction of pagan images. The iconoclastic campaign intensified, and the Serapium was ultimately destroyed. Not only was Theophilus involved in campaigns against the pagans, he was also involved in theological battles. Well, theological battles that had tremendous political ramifications that directly benefited Theophilus' own political situation. That sounds harsh, but the early sources about Theophilus are not kind to him. They make the rather compelling case that Theophilus was widely known for pursuing power and wealth, and that he swayed his theological positions for whatever suited those goals. The ancient church historian Socrates even claims Theophilus' nickname was Amphilax, which means something like flip-flopper. One older English translation rendered it as weathercock. Theophilus's notorious political maneuvering made all of his actions suspect, even to the Christians around him, none more so than his actions surrounding the condemnation of the writings of Origen. Of the three sources we have on this, all of them accused Theophilus of using anti-Origen sentiments as a bludgeon to get rid of his political opponents. To summarize, up to this point, Origenism wasn't really much of a controversy, Origen was widely read and widely accepted. A few vocal and influential opponents, like Epiphanius of Salamis and St. Jerome, had spoken out against Origen, but it hadn't gained a lot of traction. Epiphanius's big objections included his somewhat justified but overblown belief that Origen's teaching led to Arianism. Listen to the episode on Arius to see the connections there. But the beginning of Origen's posthumous problems is mired in the political intrigue surrounding Theophilus. By the late 6th century, Origen's teachings will be formally condemned as heretical, but it all started back here in the late 4th century. Theophilus, in a letter addressed to the monks in the desert of Nitria, made a comment about how God was incorporeal, that God did not have a body or physical form. The monastic movement in Egypt was quite large at this point, and the surrounding desert of Nitria was a hub of their ascetic activity. These monks protested, and apparently rioted, demanding that Theophilus recant these heretical claims, and denounce the writings of Origen, who was the primary source for this blasphemy. The ancient historians we rely on for this account are sympathetic to Origen, and they speculate that many of the Nitrian monks were illiterate former pagans, ignorant of a well-informed understanding of the Christian God. So they believed that the true God, like the false gods they had abandoned, had a physical body. And when they heard about the watchful eyes or the strong arm of God in Scripture, that means God has eyes and arms. Scripture says that we are made in God's image. So when I look in the mirror, or when I look at my neighbor... I can see what God looks like. So, when Theophilus said that God has no physical form, this was a rejection of the Bible's clear teaching on the matter. Apparently, this potentially violent faction led Theophilus to quickly change his mind. Quelling the riot as a sign of his change of heart, he said to one monk, In seeing you, I behold the face of God. Theophilus and the anti-originists would be called the anthropomorphites, because they anthropomorphized God. They made God look like a human. Now that is a very simplified and not the most charitable reading of the anti-originist movement. But here's the thing, there were still some originist monks in Nitria. In fact, origin was pretty popular among monks in general, and particularly among a few of the most respected monks in the area four men known as the Tall Brothers, because they were tall, and they were brothers. Theophilus had actually promoted a couple of these tall boys to ecclesiastical positions within the Alexandrian church. Not long after, however, they were offended by Theophilus's brazen quest for wealth and prestige, and decided to go back to the simple life of the desert, Theo found out about their true reasons for leaving, and from then on was determined to destroy them. That was easy enough for a politician like Papa Theo. He just accused them of originism, and roused the Nitrian monks against these evil originists. But things get weird. A man named Isidore was a priest who had been ordained by Athanasius and served in the Alexandrian church. As the ancient biographer of John Chrysostom tells it, A widow had given a certain amount of money to Isidore to give to the poor, but she didn't want him letting Theophilus know about the gift, because Theophilus was known for his vanity. She knew he would take the money and use it to build gaudy church buildings with precious stones. There's actually another story from Socrates that Theophilus oversaw the destruction of pagan idols. Emperor Theodosius had told him to melt them down and give the money to the poor, but he melted them down to make vessels for the church instead. So Isidore did as the widow asked. Somehow, Theophilus found out. He confronted Isidore, who confessed to the whole thing without a hint of remorse. Theophilus let Isidore go, but being a weathercock, he turned right back around and couldn't let it go. He remembered an eighteen-year-old accusation against Isidore of sodomy with a young sailor. It's a weird and complicated story, but when he couldn't find the accuser, he bribed a young boy to claim that he was the victim of Isidore. It's a real Charlie Kirk kind of scheme. Cyril's own mother allegedly made the payment to the boy's mother, who was eventually so overcome with guilt and fear of the consequences of this scheme that she confessed the whole thing to Isidore. There's another version of Theophilus and Isidore's falling out, where Isidore simply allowed a woman from the Manichaean sect to partake in the sacrament without compelling her to renounce her heresy, but that isn't as juicy of a story. Theophilus, of course, has his own version of the story. By his account, Isidore had already been cut off from communion by other bishops for a variety of reasons, and the originists were aligning with him. The story about the young boy and his mother is also very different. He claims that they were upset about the destruction of the Serapium and attempted to rouse the pagans against himself. She accused Isidore of some unspecified transgression, and Isidore's friends attempted to buy her silence by enrolling her into the rank of widows within the church, where she would be financially cared for. Either way, Isidore fled to a monastery in the surrounding desert of Nitria, and so now we're back to the monks and the tall brothers. Theophilus convened a bishop's to condemn the heads of the monasteries on spurious charges of doctrinal error, without calling the monks to defend themselves. Then he set up five foreigners in positions of power within the Egyptian churches to further solidify his control. Having bolstered his power, he ordered the expulsion of the heads of the Nitrian monasteries, including the tall brothers who went to Alexandria to protest and ask why they had been expelled. Palladius recounts the events as follows, quote, Theophilus stared at them, like a dragon with bloodshot eyes, glaring like a bull. In his uncontrollable temper, he was livid one moment, pale the next, the next again smiling sarcastically. He took the vestment upon the shoulders of the aged Ammonius one of the tall brothers, and twisted it around his neck with his own hands, punching him in the face, making his nose bleed with his clenched fists, and shouting, Anathematize origin, you heretic! When the only point at issue was the petition on behalf of Isidore. This is the way with bad tempers. Their actions and words are like puppies, born blind. So they returned, all bloodstained, to their monasteries, without receiving an answer, and continued their usual life of austerity, sharpening their natural powers by the study of scriptures, through which we win salvation. They thought the less of the man's frenzy, because they were conscious of their own innocence. The Tall Brothers were then forced to flee, taking a large number of like-minded monks and Isidore with them to Constantinople, and took shelter with the bishop there, our old friend, John Chrysostom. Well, guess what? Theophilus has a pass with Chrysostom. Apparently, Theophilus was opposed to St. John's appointment to this position from the very beginning. Old Johnny Goldenmouth, hospitable as he was, received the exiles, but seeing as they were in dispute with their bishop, he did not want to overstep, without knowing Theophilus's side of the story and so he didn't let them participate in communion. John attempted to negotiate with Theophilus on behalf of the refugees, but Theophilus wouldn't have it. He took the opportunity to launch a full-scale war against the bishop of Constantinople. At this point, Theophilus basically dropped his concern about the monks and turned his attention to Chrysostom's widely known love for the teachings of origin. Theophilus's hypocrisy was rather evident, as I said, the Nicene Creed was not immediately enforced after the council, but the canons were. On the one hand, Theophilus accused Chrysostom of accepting the tall brothers into communion, despite the fact that they were not in good standing with their own bishop. This would have been a violation of the canons of Nicaea. On the other hand, he was reportedly in cahoots with Epiphanius, the other anti-originist bishop from Cyprus, and instructed him to ordain like-minded deacons in Constantinople in order to stack the jury against Chrysostom. The problem with this is that ordaining clergy in another bishop's territory is also explicitly forbidden in the canons, for exactly this kind of reason. The story is rather long and complicated. There were numerous letters and threats, riots, appeals to the Empress Eudoxia, and an eventual council at a place called the Oak. I have a bonus episode recounting the events leading up to and following the Synod of the Oak about Theophilus' fight against John Chrysostom and the eventual expulsion and death of St. John. Go to patreon.com slash podcastica patristica for more information on how you can listen to that. The earliest for sure date we have for Cyril's whereabouts is at the Synod of the Oak in 403. Well-ensconced among the ecclesial elites of Alexandria, Cyril journeyed with Theophilus to Constantinople, to the Synod of the Oak, where Theophilus was to have Chrysostom condemned and exiled. Again, Theophilus's hypocrisy was not lost on his opponents. In the midst of all the controversy about Origen's teachings, when he was attempting to have John deposed, Socrates writes, quote, Theophilus was degraded, in everyone's estimation. But the odium attached to him was exceedingly increased by the shameless way in which he continued to read Origen's works. And when he was asked why he thus countenanced what he had publicly condemned, he replied, Origen's books are like a meadow, enameled with flowers of every kind. If, therefore, I chance to find a beautiful one among them, I cull it. But whatever appears to me to be thorny... I step over as that which would prick. Socrates goes on, But Theophilus gave his answer, without reflecting on the saying of the wise Solomon, that the words of the wise are as goads, and those who are pricked by the precepts they contain ought not to kick against them. Theophilus died on October 15th in 412 CE. Three days later, at 33 years old, Cyril took his place on the seat of St. Mark as the Pope of Alexandria. But this is Alexandrian politics in the 5th century. It's not going to happen without some skulls getting cracked. For some reason, Theophilus was not well-liked by the secular authorities of Alexandria. Who would have thought? They apparently referred to him as the Egyptian pharaoh, because of his overreach of authority. They were not interested in another generation of this dynasty. They opposed Cyril's claim, and supported instead a man named Timothy. Riots broke out between these two factions, Timothy with the support of the imperial arm in Alexandria, and Cyril with the support of the ecclesial leaders, including a formidable group known as the Parabolani. A group of armed zealots who, along with caring for the sick and the poor, also served as a sort of local militia group. The riots lasted for three days before Cyril's faction prevailed, and he received his title as Pope of Alexandria. This scene really sets the tone for Cyril's career. His uncle Theophilus, in the eyes of the civil authorities and in the eyes of many of his colleagues in the church, had overreached his authority, both within the church and in the secular world. Cyril will only continue that trend, finding himself at the center of power struggles both within the church and without. He was known as his uncle's nephew, and the new Theophilus. And the question we're left with is whether Cyril was the conniving, power-hungry bishop who wanted control over every aspect of Alexandrian life, or the perhaps overzealous, theological powerhouse, who constantly found himself in lose-lose political scenarios just because of the nature of his position and the political climate. Cyril's first act in power was to close all of the churches associated with the Novationist sect. Novationists were churches that refused to accept people back into communion after they had lapsed during times of persecution. To them, If you denied Christ, there was no going back, at least not without some extreme penance. Cyril shut them down, seized their churches, and incorporated them into the broader church. Then, like many bishops in this age, he had a tiff with the Jewish population. According to the Christian sources, the Roman prefect Orestes, a Christian himself, was reading a public edict, New rules regarding public theatrical shows. From what I can tell, he wanted to prevent these shows from inciting mobs. Apparently, these shows typically occurred on the Sabbath, and the Jewish locals enjoyed attending them. As Orestes is giving his speech, in walks a man by the name of Herax, a well known Christian. Socrates describes him as basically a hype man for the preacher. He was, in Socrates' words, conspicuous. Now, the Jewish attendees saw Herax and believed, probably rightly, that he was there to spy on those attending the event, maybe even to incite their anger. And it worked. It was seen as a particularly grievous offense. Here's how Socrates describes the scene. When the Jews observed this person in the theater, they immediately cried out that he had come there for no other purpose than to excite sedition among the people. Now, Orestes, had long regarded with jealousy the growing power of the bishops, because they encroached on the jurisdiction of the authorities appointed by the emperor, especially as Cyril wished to set spies over his proceedings. He therefore ordered Hirax seized, and publicly subjected him to torture in the theater. Cyril, on being informed of this, sent for the principal Jews, and threatened them with the utmost severities, unless they desisted from their molestation of the Christians." notice what's happening here. While the Jewish citizens are listening to the civil authorities regarding their own civil liberties, Cyril's crew comes in to check on things. When Orestes, the one who has imperial authority, has the spy tortured, Cyril goes not to Orestes, but to the Jewish leaders and threatens them. Orestes isn't blind to what's happening here. Alexandria, at this point, has long had a significant Jewish population, and now Christianity isn't a backwater religion. It has spread rapidly, and now it's the official religion of the empire. Jewish worship was tolerated under both pagan and Christian leadership, but there was a great sense of philosophical hostility under Christian leadership specifically, because for the Jewish Romans, these Christians were claiming their own god their own scriptures. Don't misunderstand, the hostility wasn't always dramatic or violent. Philosophical squabbling was always brutal between pagans, Christians, and Jews. Rhetorically, everyone went hard. But 5th century Alexandria was a violent world, and the Jewish population was caught in the crossfire of a bitter power struggle between the Roman prefect and the Christian bishop. At one point... In a ballsy power move, Cyril claimed to desire reconciliation, and attempted to have Orestes kiss his Bible as a public sign of their cooperation. Orestes saw this for what it was, an attempt to put Orestes in his place below the bishop, and he refused. Tensions rose between the prefect and the bishop, and a mob of 500 monks from Nitria, loyal to Cyril attacked Orestes in the streets of Alexandria, decrying him for being unbaptized. Orestes attempted to explain to them that he had indeed been baptized by Bishop Atticus of Constantinople. It may or may not be a coincidence that Cyril was not a fan of Atticus, because he was a fierce defender of John Chrysostom and was leading efforts to have John return to Constantinople One scholar has even argued that the controversy over John Chrysostom was the central point of tension between Orestes and Cyril. Back to the scene. A stone struck Orestes, gashing his head open. Local Alexandrians came to his aid and rescued him from the mob just in time. After the incident, Orestes found the man who threw the stone, a man named Ammonius, not the same one of the Tall Brothers and proceeded to torture him to death. Cyril was able to get a hold of the body and laid it in repose for public viewing, and declared Ammonius a martyr. Apparently Cyril's ploy was easy to see through, and the public didn't take the bait. Ammonius was not killed for refusing to renounce Christ, which is what it means to be a martyr. He was killed for attempted murder of a government official. In the ongoing struggle, things continued to escalate, and came to a head with a brutal public assassination. Alexandria was the seat of philosophy in the ancient world. It boasted of some of the greatest minds, Philo, Ptolemy, Plotinus, Origen, a long tradition of Neoplatonism. The Alexandria of Cyril's day produced a scholar of brilliant intellect, the child of a renowned mathematician who surpassed their father's brilliance but this philosopher was unique. This philosopher was a woman. Hypatia was by no means the only female philosopher, but it was still relatively uncommon for a woman to hold that position. Not only was she a brilliant thinker, she was also a skilled diplomat. She took in Christian students and associated with government officials. She was respected by all, Pagan, Christian, Roman, Egyptian, she was not only respected, she was loved. One legend is told by the historian Damascius. She was so beautiful and shapely that one of her students fell in love with her, and was unable to control himself, and openly showed her a sign of his infatuation. She gathered rags that had been stained during her period, and showed them to him as a sign of her unclean descent, and said, This is what you love, young man, and isn't it beautiful? He was so affected by shame and amazement at the ugly sight that he experienced a change of heart and went away a better man. Hypatia, being a beloved public philosopher, had a good relationship with Orestes, In fact, she enjoyed the privilege of having freedom to speak in his court, a privilege not enjoyed by Bishop Cyril. Rumors spread that she was influencing Orestes, preventing him from being reconciled to Cyril. During the Lenten season, a low-ranking official from Cyril's church formed a lynch mob of Christians. I should note that the following scene contains graphic violence against a woman. If you're sensitive to that, just skip over the next ten seconds or so, I'm not going to linger on the details. As she was returning home one day, the mob attacked and dragged her from her carriage into the church in the Caesareum. They stripped her and stoned her with broken tiles. After tearing her body in pieces, they took her mangled limbs to a place called Sinarin, and there burnt them. Socrates says that the event stained the reputation of Cyril and the whole Alexandrian church. Essentially, no evidence suggests that Cyril had a direct hand in the death of Hypatia. Religious and philosophically inspired violence was very common, especially during religious festivals. Marila Hasse, in her book on Hypatia, argues convincingly that the group of murderers were likely trying to do something to gain the favor of Cyril, to be noticed, to make a statement. She notes that Socrates' account actually mirrors the style and process of narratives about the destruction of pagan idols. In the modern era, Hypatia has been cast as the saint and martyr of science and atheism. She is science personified, the pure virgin of secular scholarship. These events are actually depicted in the 2009 film Agora, Rachel Wise plays Hypatia, and Oscar Isaac plays Orestes. It's an interesting movie, and as I understand it, fairly accurate in its portrayal of violence in the 5th century. In it, Hypatia is represented as the honorable atheist, who is persecuted for her love of science and truth, while Cyril is represented as the evil, violent church, who was blinded by religious bigotry and zealotry. In truth, Hypatia was a worshipper of the Greco-Egyptian gods, just like most other philosophers of her time in that area. Spinning this as a battle between religion and science is just not accurate, but that's how most in the modern era tend to view it. It was, in fact, a battle between religions, between philosophical schools. Obviously, that does not excuse anything that happened, but in modern hagiography of Hypatia, it might be easy to miss the nuances of what was really going on. Also, the film does that weird thing of trying to be socially conscious while also being kind of racist. Hypatia, the good and noble virgin atheist, is represented by the very white British actress, while the evil bad guy is portrayed by the dark-skinned Egyptian native. I mean, all of these people were Egyptian, Why is the bad guy the only prominent Egyptian in the film? Anyway, despite its flaws, it's an interesting film that I think is worth checking out, if only to see a depiction of 5th century Alexandria. Cyril wouldn't be a true bishop of Alexandria without a major theological controversy. Like Athanasius and his uncle Theophilus, Cyril would also make a name for himself as the defender of the faith against the vile haters of God who spread heresy. I'll give a thousand foot view of the events as best I can without getting too much into the weeds. You'll have to wait until the next episode to get the fuller story. It all started in the capital city of Constantinople. When they installed as their bishop a priest from Antioch by the name of Nestorius. Turns out, Nestorius was teaching some things that didn't sit right with Cyril. Namely, he refused to call Mary Theotokos, the mother of God, or literally, the one who births God. Now, before my fellow prots decide to start venerating Nestorius as our first anti-Catholic champion, The problem for him wasn't the elevation of Mary. His problem goes back to the same old problem that Arius was trying to avoid. He wanted to protect the doctrine of God's immutability, God's unchangeableness. God is eternal and omnipresent. If Mary brought God into the world, then that means God changes. He also wanted to protect the doctrine of Christ's humanity, a point that people in the Antiochene tradition from which Nestorius came were particularly interested in. The heretic Apollinaris was accused of teaching that Jesus was not really human. He didn't have a human soul or a human mind. He had a divine soul and divine mind. Jesus, the body, was just the skin and bones that the Logos used like a puppet. This is just as unacceptable to Nestorius as the belief that the divine creator could undergo some sort of change. So he didn't want to call Mary Theotokos. He also didn't want to call her Anthropotokos, the one who gives birth to man, as others did, though he was more sympathetic to this term. Instead, he called her Christotokos. Christ, he believed, has two complete natures, two prosopa, persons in Greek, the divine and the human. This is not like Apollinaris' heresy, which claimed that Jesus had a divine soul, but a human body. No, Christ had a divine soul and a human soul, all wrapped up in this one body, to become this one entity, the Christ. The logos, his divine side, is impassible and omnipotent. With it, he could turn water into wine, heal the sick. This part is unchanging. His humanity, however, was passable and limited. His humanity got hungry and needed food, got tired and needed sleep. It could be tempted, it could be beaten, it could even die. But make no mistake, in Christ there is full divinity and full humanity. Two persons united in one. Sounds a little bit like how we might understand the Trinity. And this may all sound well and good, but it creates a big problem. If Christ is a full divine person and a full human person, if there are two prosopa, persons, each with their own souls and minds, sounds an awful lot like Nestorius thinks that there are two sons of God. His alleged heresy would be called dioprosopism, or two-personism. Having learned from his uncle Theophilus, Cyril responded exactly how we might expect, quickly and thoroughly, using every tool at his disposal. He wrote letters to Nestorius and to other bishops, and preached publicly against the supposed heretic. Cyril championed the idea of the union of two natures enosis ec dio fission. so Christ is not two persons, Christ is two natures that compose one person. Nestorius responded with the phrase, Christ and two natures, Christos and dio physisen. Perhaps the most important contribution Cyril made to Christian theology was his novel way of describing the union of Christ's two natures, He said that the natures of Christ are united, in Greek, kath hypostasin, according to substance. This is where we get the phrase you have probably heard before, the hypostatic union. Cyril wrote, quote, Scripture, after all, has not asserted that the word united a man's role, prosopon, person, to himself, but that he has become flesh. But the Logos' becoming flesh is just the fact that he shared flesh and blood like us, made our body his own, and issued as man from woman without abandoning his being God and his being begotten of God the Father, but remaining what he was when he assumed flesh as well. This is the universal representation of carefully framed theology. This is the key to the Holy Father's thinking. This is why they dare to call the Holy Virgin Theotokos, not because the Word's nature, his Godhead, originated from the Holy Virgin, but because his holy body, endowed with life and reason, was born from her, and the Word was born in flesh, because united to this body substantially, kathipostasen. Nestorius believed Cyril was compromising the fullness of both aspects of Christ, which is not a small problem. Cyril seemed to teach, in Nestorius's mind, that the humanity and the divinity of Christ were mixed to form something new. You get 50% man, 50% God, to form 100% something different. Not totally divine, not totally human. If Christ is not totally divine, then how does he have the power to forgive? For only God can forgive. If he is not totally human, how can he be tempted as we are, and experience our nature, and thus redeem it? As Gregory Nazianzen said, that which Christ has not assumed cannot be redeemed. So for Nestorius, what Cyril was teaching had a direct implication on how God is even able to redeem humanity. Cyril rallied all the bishops and monks he could, starting with the third major ecclesial power in the Christian world, Pope Celestine of Rome. Nestorius responded by appealing to his friend, Emperor Theodosius II. As the controversy heated up, the emperor agreed to host an ecumenical council to settle this issue once and for all. I'll read David Wilhite's timeline of the events here from his book, The Gospel According to Heretics. On November 19th, in the year 430, the emperor invites leading bishops to Ephesus, mostly from eastern provinces, but others were also invited. Also of interest, the council met in the great church dedicated to Mary, which must have made for a formidable space in which to deny the title Theotokos, Mother of God. June 7th, 431, the date is set for the council to begin. The council is delayed as it waits for bishops from the west and from Syria. The most notably late is John, Patriarch of Antioch. June 22nd, 431. With 154 bishops present, Cyril begins the council even though the absent bishops of the west and Syria still have not arrived. Candidian, the official representative of Emperor Theodosius II, objects to Cyril's actions. Nestorius refuses to acknowledge the validity of the council and does not attend the council. Cyril has Nestorius deposed in abstentia. Cyril's formula that Christ is one hypostasis is accepted, without definition, which will be important for later debates. June 26th, 431, John of Antioch arrives, but refuses to recognize the council. John summons his own council with fifty bishops and with Candidian's support denouncing Cyril. July ninth, 431, representatives of Rome arrive, supporting Cyril. In early August, the new representative of the emperor, John, then arrests Cyril, Nestorius, and the bishops of Ephesus, sending the other bishops home. September 11th, Cyril persuades the emperor, allegedly bribes him, and Nestorius is deposed. Nestorius returns in shame to Antioch to be a monk Cyril returns without permission to Alexandria for most of the church particularly in the west Cyril's council in Ephesus would be known as the third ecumenical council Nestorius's supporters would view it as Cyril's false synod the debates lasted for decades as the bitter rivalry between the Nestorians and the Cyrillians continued. Eventually, in 451, an ecumenical council was held in Chalcedon to settle the question once and for all. And if you've been paying attention to the cycles of church history, you'll likely guess that little was actually settled. The Council of Chalcedon ostensibly landed on Cyril's side, in what is now called the Chalcedonian definition The theological statement defining the Church's teaching on Christ's Incarnation, it states, Born of Mary, the virgin Theotokos, as to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union but rather the properties of each nature being preserved, and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis, not as though he was parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. But a major segment of the church refused to accept this answer. Of course, the Nestorians were not happy with it, but unexpectedly, a significant number of Cyril's followers rejected it. See, the Chalcedonian definition didn't use Cyril's phrase, ek dio physion, out of two natures. Instead, it describes Christ as in dio physesin, in two natures. To the devotees of Cyril, this sounds like they've compromised with Nestorianism. Christ is not in two natures, Christ is one nature of God the Word made flesh. They will call themselves the Miophysites. That means one nature. So today, the majority of Christendom is made up of Chalcedonians, who believe they are upholding the teachings of Cyril against Nestorius. But there's also a large number of non-Chalcedonian Christians in the Eastern Orthodox Church who believe they are preserving the teaching of Cyril. Also to be found today are Nestorian Christians, who still wish to emphasize the distinction between Christ's divinity and humanity in order to preserve both. Cyril's writings can be pretty easily divided between his pre-Nestorian and then his anti-Nestorian works. We have his commentaries on both Old and New Testament books, on Isaiah, on the Minor Prophets, on the Gospels of Luke and of John. He wrote a work known as The Five Tomes against Nestorius, and possibly his most famous work on the unity of Christ. In his later years between fighting with the Nestorians, he found time to write a work against polytheism called Against Julian. That one is a refutation of the writings of the emperor Julian who ruled before Cyril was born, from 361 to 363. He is known as Julian the Apostate. As his title suggests, he abandoned the Christian religion of the empire and attempted to reinstitute paganism. I'll read a section of Cyril's commentary from the Gospel of John, written before the Nestorian controversies, but addresses its themes. Here he discusses chapter 6, verses 38 to 39 For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. Cyril writes, What was it then that was both willed and not willed by Christ? The treatment he bore at the hands of the Jews, the dishonor, the revilings, and the insults, the tortures and scourgings and spittings, and moreover the false charges, and the last of all, the death of the flesh. Christ bore these things willingly for our sake, but if it had been possible for him to achieve what he earnestly desired for us without suffering, he would not have wished to suffer. But since the Jews were undoubtedly utterly intent on inflicting these things upon him, he accepts that he has to suffer and turns what he does not will into what he wills, for the sake of the good that would ensue from his suffering. God the Father concurred with him and consented that he should willingly undergo all things for the salvation of all. In this we see very clearly the infinite goodness of the divine nature, for it did not refuse to make that which was undesirable the object of its will for our sake. That the suffering on the cross was in a sense not willed by Christ the Savior, yet at the same time was willed for our sake and the good pleasure of God the Father is something you will in consequence understand. For when he was about to ascend to him and address his discourses to God, he said clearly in the form of a prayer, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That the word was God immortal and incorruptible, and by nature life in itself, who could not cower before death, is I think abundantly clear to all. Nevertheless, having come to be in the flesh, he allows himself to experience the things proper to the flesh, and consequently, when death is at the door, to cower before it, that he might appear to be a real human being. That is why he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me what he means is this, if it be possible, father, that without suffering death I should win life for those who have fallen under its power, if death could die without my dying, that is to say with regard to the flesh, let the cup pass from me, but since this cannot take place in any other way, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Do you see how weak human nature is, even in Christ himself, when it relies on its own powers? through the word that is united with it, the flesh is brought back to a courage befitting God, and is restrained in order to have a more valiant spirit, so as not to rely upon what seems right to its own will, but rather to follow the aim of the divine will, and eagerly to run towards whatever the law of the Creator calls us. That we are right in saying this, you may also learn from the text that follows. For the spirit is willing, it says, but the flesh is weak, Christ, of course, was not unaware that to seem to be defeated by death and to experience fear as a result of this fell very short of the dignity appropriate to God. That is why he added a most spirited defense to what he had just said, declaring that the flesh is weak because of what is proper to it and belongs to it by nature, whereas the spirit, by contrast, is willing because it knows that it can suffer nothing that can harm it. Do you see how death was willed by Christ on account of the flesh and the ignominy of suffering, and yet at the same time was willed by Him until He should bring to a happy conclusion for the sake of the whole world that which was the object of the Father's good pleasure, namely the salvation and the life of all? For is it not certainly true that He is presented as indicating something of this kind to us when He says that this is the will of the Father, that nothing that has been brought to him will perish, but he will raise it up on the last day. For as we have already taught, God the Father, in his compassion for humanity, brings those lacking life and salvation to Christ, who is life and Savior. It's easy to see why Nestorius would find two separate natures in Christ. In this passage, Nestorius might say that the divine Logos willed to undergo the crucifixion, while the human nature of Christ willed something different. In fact, at times in this passage, it seems like Cyril is saying something remarkably similar. But for him, there is no contradiction in saying that Christ both willed and did not will. It isn't that the natures of Christ are separable, that they wanted separate things. These two natures of Christ were unified completely, making one nature, divine and human. Not a contradictory pairing, but a paradoxical one. After more than 30 years of leading the church in Alexandria, Cyril died in June of the year 444. Much of Cyril's legacy is negative for all the reasons I've mentioned and more. Later, the church basically accepted that Nestorius and Cyril believed essentially the same thing, but linguistic differences and semantics caused them to talk past one another. This has, rightly in my opinion, led to a more sympathetic view of the alleged heretic Nestorius, but it has also led to an even more hostile view of Cyril. To be honest, it's hard to be charitable to him. Despite the fact that he supposedly won the Christological debate of his day, pretty much all of our historical sources viewed him and his uncle as unscrupulous schemers. His victory over Nestorius seems to have been something of a pyrrhic victory. We'll talk more about that in detail in the coming episodes. The Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates Cyril's feast day on June 9th. The Catholic Church celebrates it on June 27th. In 1882, Pope Leo XIII named Cyril a doctor of the church. Perhaps it's no coincidence that at this time in the 19th century, the doctrine of Mary was a central issue to the Catholic Church. After continued pressure from bishops, Leo XIII's predecessor, Pope Pius IX, commissioned a group of theologians to begin formulating a dogma of the Immaculate Conception, which was eventually adopted with the approval of over 90% of the bishops. Leo XIII continued the trend of Marian devotion and following his predecessor's example, emphasized Mary's motherhood, and even her role as co-redemptrix with Christ. He wrote a record number of encyclicals on the rosary, and instituted the custom of praying the rosary every day in the month of October, earning himself the moniker of the Pope of the Rosary. So it makes a certain amount of sense that, in a time when the Catholic Church was codifying their doctrine of Mary, they would recognize Cyril, the defender of the Theotokos, as doctor of the church and thus recognizing his writings as authoritative. So the legacy of Cyril is a mixed bag. He has a reputation for fighting dirty, for abusing power, for overreaching his authority. But at the same time, he is known for being a powerful theologian, one who thinks deeply about scripture and about our understanding of God. In the coming episodes, we'll discuss more about his debates with Nestorius and about the other side of things. If you're interested, there is currently a bonus episode on the Synod of the Oak in which Pope Theophilus deposed John Chrysostom. If you'd like to hear it, you can go to patreon.com podcastica patristica and subscribe to hear those bonus episodes. In the words of Barnabas, farewell, children of love and peace. May the God of glory and all grace be with your spirit. Amen.